Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel, and today we're going to be talking to Eric Lee about his new book, Night of the Bayonets, The Texel Uprising and Hitler's Revenge. Hello, Eric. Thanks for coming. Hi, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself briefly? Um, yes, I'm a London-based um, historian and journalist. I've written about the subject of, um, of Georgia, Soviet Georgia, pre-Soviet Georgia, before. So um, this is my, my latest book. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about the Texel Uprising? Because I think it's something many people don't know about. Yeah, first of all, the, the, um, everyone in, in, in Russia and Georgia pronounces it Texel, but actually the Dutch call it Tessel for some reason. The, they say the X is like an SS sound. Okay. In any, in any event, um, it, I was read somewhere that one should never say this is the unknown story of the Tessel uprising, because to Georgians and to uh, Dutch people, it's a fairly well-known story. And there's, there's quite a bit written about it and so on. The, the problem is what, the, uh, what they know certainly for the Georgians, is largely a myth. So should, should I tell what actually, what actually happened, and briefly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So what actually happened was there was a, a unit called the 822nd Battalion of the German Army, which was part of the Georgian Legion. And the Georgian Legion were former uh, prisoners of war, former Red Army uh, fighters who were captured or surrendered to the Germans, and eventually switched sides, put on German uniforms, and served the German Army. And in April 1945, this battalion, which was stationed on the small Dutch island of Tessel, uh, rebelled, carried out a mutiny, and seized control of almost the entire island. Um, the Germans counterattacked, and it continued after VE Day, which is why we say it's the uh, final battle of the Second World War in Europe. That's the story in a nutshell. So what got you interested in this topic? As I mentioned earlier, I've written a book about uh, Georgia, Georgia before it became part of the Soviet Union, when it was briefly an independent and democratic socialist republic. And when you read about Georgian history at all in the 20th century, this story comes up, the story of of Tessel. It's it's a footnote to many books. And I realized the more I read about it in kind of mainstream history, the, the, the more curious the story became and the more inaccurate became the accounts I was reading. People really hadn't researched it and bought into one or another mythology about the story. And I thought I'd try to figure out what actually happened and cut through the myth. So I think it's interesting when you're introducing the book, you start out with this little story of these soldiers showing up in a small boat and being found by the British. And you note that both the British and the Dutch refer to these Georgian soldiers as Russian, but you make it clear that they are not Russian, that they are Georgian. How important do you think it is to make clear that Soviet encompasses many different nationalities and is not a synonym for Russian? Yeah, well, that's usually important. And we encounter this all the time. In one of the fir- my first trip ever to the Channel Islands, I wrote a book again about uh, um, a British commando raid there. I visited a little museum there, and it had uniforms of German soldiers who were based in Guernsey in the Channel Islands. And one of the uniforms had a Georgian flag sewn on the, on the side, on the sleeve. It was a flag of the independent Georgian Republic. And it said in German, in Latin characters, Georgien or Georgien. And they, they captioned it in English, Russian uniform. I mean, it didn't even say Russian. It wasn't even in Cyrillic. It was clearly not a Russian uniform. 
was it Georgian ones? I think it's usually important because part of the explanation for why Georgians agreed to put on German uniforms is the same reason why Ukrainians and Belarusians and, and others also put on German uniforms. They, they were not Russians, and they were not, they were not happy uh, members of the Soviet family of nations, as it was then known. Okay. Um, so you said you started with a book on, you know, sort of Georgian revolutionary experience. It's called The Experiment. We've actually done a podcast on that. Uh, and you start this book here, too, from sort of uh, pre-revolutionary Georgia. How important is Georgia's revolutionary history for this story, and what impact does it have on their relationship with Germany? Okay, in terms of, of, uh, of its importance, I'm not sure how important it is for these individual soldiers. I mean, a friend of mine who actually wrote a little review of the book talked about the social democratic values of, of these soldiers in the German army. I don't think they were social democrats. I think these were young Georgian men who were born after the Soviet conquest of Georgia and probably weren't very political and didn't really care. Um, it, however, the Georgian exiles, many of whom were living in Germany during the war, for them, the, the relationship between Georgia and Germany was forged during the three years of Georgian independence. Uh, Germany occupied Georgia for the first several months of its independence. It was a benign occupation. The German army was welcomed by the independent Georgian government. So the Georgians had, the Georgians in exile certainly, had a very positive view of Germany, of pre-Hitler Germany, some of which persisted even after Hitler came to power. And the Georgian, um, even the Georgian Social Democrats in exile, who were actually in, in France during this period, mostly in France, um, were not that hostile to the Germans because of the German, uh, what the Germans had done in 1918. So I'd say it's not central to the story, but it's part of the story. And you can't understand why Georgians in exile who were thinking about this, why they would uh, embrace the Germans as possible liberators of Georgia without knowing Georgian history. How did they react to the new Hitler regime? Um, the ones in exile, obviously the ones in Georgia, all they knew was what Soviet media was telling them, right? They were living in a society that had no access to any independent sources of news. The Georgians in exile, who were largely social democrats, were hostile to the Nazi regime, not supportive of it at all. They were, their comrades were the ones who were being rounded up and killed by Hitler. Um, so their reaction when the Germans uh, occupied France the Georgians were not arrested. They developed an interesting relationship with the German occupiers and, in fact, were able to rescue a very large number of Georgian Jews. They, they managed to persuade the Germans. It's a long, convoluted story in the book, and it's kind of a bit of a mystery, but they managed to persuade the German occupiers that Georgian Jews were not actually Jews. They were Georgians. And therefore, they should not be obligated to wear the yellow Star of David or be sent to the death camp. So they weren't, and they rescued a very significant number of Jews. And part of this was due to the fact that the Georgians themselves, of left or right or whatever, have no historical tradition of anti-Semitism. Unlike some of the other uh, Soviet nationalities, there was no hostility to the Jews at all among the Georgians. So they opposed anti-Semitism with the Hitler regime, and they did what they could to rescue Jews. And it's, it's all pretty well documented that they did this. So how did our Georgians who end up in Tessel, not necessarily the uh expats that you're talking about here who were, you know, helping to rescue Jews, but the, the, the soldiers who came out of Soviet Georgia, how did they end up as German POWs? Did they get captured in Barbarossa? Were they captured later? Um, most of them were captured in, in the first year of the fighting when the, the Red Army was in headlong retreat and the Germans were rounding up 
Soviet soldiers by the by the truckload. Um, so many of them were captured in 1941-42. That's most of them. The story of how they became German soldiers is an interesting one. Um, there's, there's one account which I got out of the, the British National Archives in Kew. It's the interrogation done by British officers of captured Georgians in German uniform. They asked one of them, how did you wind up in the, in the German army? And he said, well, they, they separated all the Georgians out from the other Soviet prisoners, and they took like a thousand of us to some camp. They told us all to stand out in this field or courtyard that we did, and a German officer addressed us. And the German officer said, all of you who oppose the Reich, step forward. So no one stepped forward because they knew they'd get a bullet to their head if they did. And the German officer then said, congratulations, you've completed your induction ceremony into the German army. That was, that was the story. So they weren't really volunteers in many cases. Some of the cases they, they did volunteer. Other cases they were volunteered by the Germans. So why do you think the Germans singled out Georgians specifically among other Soviet nationalities to serve uh, in these units? They didn't really sing, um, single out the Georgians. They singled all the non-Russians in general were all singled out. And the Germans were very cautious about the Georgians in particular. And there's a, a passage in my book uh, where I'm quoting from Hitler, where Hitler had a staff conference with his generals. And he told them that I don't really trust the Georgians because they're not a Turkic people, meaning, meaning Muslims. He trusted Muslims, and he recruited many Soviet Muslims where he could get them into the um, German army. And to a degree, he trusted the Ukrainians and the Baltics and some of the other nationalities even more than he trusted the Georgians. He, when you he, say Muslim, does that include Central Asians? Because the accounts I've heard have been things like summary executions of Uzbeks because they thought they were uh, lesser people. Yeah, well, part of what went on was what Muslims were captured. Mus Soviet soldiers who were Muslim, who were captured, were the G Germans wanted to um, screen out the Jews. And any Jews they found, obviously, would, would, be, would be killed. To do it quickly, they thought, we'll just kill anyone who's circumcised. Oops. Which meant all these Muslims were, were killed because they were thought to be Jewish. Um, I'm not sure exactly who he means. Obviously, there were relations with groups like the Crimean Tatars and, and others, um, Chechens, who were Muslim and who Hitler felt would, would be better, you know, better allies than these dodgy Georgians. He, had a, he was concerned about them. But his advisors were, including a Rosenberg, were very keen on, on using the Georgians. They understood the Georgians could potentially be quite hostile to the Russians. How did the Georgians feel about Stalin? Because a fair number of people in the Soviet hierarchy, including Stalin and Berea, are all Georgians. So that, you know, it's, it's not a Russian government, per se, did that make any difference? Uh, well, first of all, in, in Hitler's view, it did. He thought they'd be more loyal to Stalin. And of course, when the war ended, I mean, all of them, the Georgians who survived, the 200 who survived, made a big deal of how they were incredibly loyal to Stalin. They adored him. They would do anything for him. But that's what they would say at the end of the war. Um, uh, Georgians did feel a sense of national pride, many of them, in Stalin being the leader. He was the, the guy from the little Georgian you know, republic or province who became the master of this vast Soviet empire. There was an element of that, of, of, of li liking or admiring Stalin. Often in Soviet Union, people admired tough leaders. I'm not sure if Beria was admired. He certainly feared. But Stalin was admired as a war leader and as a leader of, of a great empire. So how did the Georgians who survived, um, clearly you don't know what the people who died felt, but how did they feel about having joined or been forced to join or volunteered to join uh, the Wehrmacht um, in retrospect? Do they, do they feel regret? Do they feel 
anything? Well, I think it depends on when you ask them, right? Because if you ask them in that, when they actually joined, which would have been around 1942, I think most of them came in. Um, 1942, the Germans were winning the war, and the Soviet Union looked, looked to be finished. It wasn't clear until after Stalingrad that actually the Germans had lost the war. So um, I think if you ask them in April 1945, they, all of them regretted. There's, no, there's evidence of, I think, only one Georgian out of the hundreds on Tesla, only one who remained loyal to the Germans and sort of tried to betray his Georgian colleagues. All the others unanimously rallied behind their leaders and took up arms against the Germans. So certainly by 1945, and even before, they were convinced the Germans had lost the war. We were on the wrong side. We had to make sure that the Soviets understood that we, you know, we, we did, were not here voluntarily and we'll do everything we can to kill Germans. So this was more of a pragmatic than an ideological decision? Yeah, I don't think they were very ideological. There's no evidence that, that they were. They, they talk later, there's talk that one of the leaders of the group, um, a guy named Artemidze, who, who survived, was, um, was a bit of a commissar. You know, he represented the views of the Communist Party when they put out little uh, newsletters at the end of the war. He's the guy who dug up pictures of Stalin and hammers and sickles. But I don't think they were very political. These were ordinary young Georgians who were drafted into the Red Army. They weren't necessarily ideological at all or nationalistic. Um, so you talked about Hitler saying that he didn't feel that the Georgians were particularly reliable. Were they reliable as Wehrmacht troops or, or were there issues with their reliability from the beginning? This is one of these, these I guess, fairly rare cases where Hitler was actually right about something. He was right about the Georgians. <laughs> they, they were not reliable at all. And there were stories of them being deployed in various places at one point to the Crimea. And the, the minute they came into contact with Soviet forces, they crossed lines. They went back. I, I don't get the sense they were punished at that point. I think at that point in the war, uh, Georgian units could go back. There were also, of course, cases of the reverse. There were Red Army units deployed against them that defected to the German side. So there were mutual defections going on. But on the whole, they were not considered a reliable force. And by 1944, around there, thereabouts, they were sent to the West. They were taken away from the Eastern Front, so they couldn't easily defect to the Soviet forces. What happened to the people who did defect to the Soviets? Because I know post-war, a lot of POWs in general end up um, in gulags. <laughs> yes. um, is that the fate that met the uh, Georgian defectors too? Because I could see where that could be seen as treasonous to go serve for the, the Wehrmacht and then defect back. Well, as it's, uh, I have a quote in the book, one Russian writer said, actually, they, they committed treason twice uh, to, to Stalin. The first was when they, they surrendered or allowed themselves to be captured because they were ordered not to do that by, by Stalin in a very famous order that no one was to be treated a single inch and the last bullet, last bullet was to be reserved for the soldier himself. So that was the first treason. The second treason was putting on the Wehrmacht uniform. So they were double traitors and they didn't have much of a future ahead of them. The ones who quit during the fighting, when they were still on the Eastern Front, to my knowledge, were not, were not punished. They were simply re they returned somehow to the Soviet Union. I haven't studied that aspect of it. The fate of what happened to those in 1945 is, is an extraordinary and largely unknown part of, of the story. It's the part, I'll give you an example. Today, I was sent an article that appeared in a Canadian newspaper this week saying that at the end of the war, all the Georgians who survived were sent to the Gulag, most of them died. And this is completely untrue. It's what people, it's widely reported, but there's no relationship between that, that and the reality of what happened to the Georgians, these Georgians. Well, I find that when you actually get into gulag studies, a lot of what is reported is not reflective of what actually happened in many cases. 
Well, this is a bit of a mystery because at the time, and the Germans made sure the Georgians understood this, um, at Yalta, and probably even before that, it was understood that any uh, <clears throat> Soviet citizens captured by the advancing Allied armies in Western and Central Europe would be returned to the Soviet Union, a repatriation, including those who, who were serving in the, in the SS and the Wehrmacht, and there were quite a few of them. The Germans made sure that these Georgians understood that, that you're going to be sent back to the Soviet Union when this war is over, and Stalin is not going to be happy to see you. Uh, and it's it, th and so it's reasonable to have said, okay, well, then they probably were sent to the Gulag and killed when they got back. That, that makes sense. That would, that's what would have happened. And of course, there's the famous case of General Vlasov and his Russian Liberation Army, where Vlasov, even though his forces actually fought initially for the Germans, then switched sides at the end of the war. Even in his case, he was, uh, I think, hanged or shot by Stalin in 1946. So uh, the Russians should not have expected mercy going back to the Soviet Union, and that's why it's a surprising story that actually they were not sent to the Gulag and they were not killed. Good to know. Um, how did they end up in Tessel, of all places? Yeah, they followed a very circuitous route. I mean, they initially were, were based in, in, in the German-occupied Soviet Union, and then they, they were in Poland for some time, where they engaged in anti-partisan actions. This was a contentious historical point. I was actually challenged by a Georgian academic who said that's communist mythology. They never did anti-partisan actions. That would, that would make them bad guys. And, and demanded to know what my source was, because he hadn't found such a source. And of course, the source is British officers interrogated Georgians who were captured in Normandy. And the Georgians said, that's what we did. We did anti-partisan actions. That was part of their role. And they were, they were quite brutal in some cases. From um, Poland, they were sent over to France, where many of the, George, the Georgian battalions remained and were involved in, in the Normandy landings, fighting the Allies. These guys were lucky and were sent into the Netherlands. So they were on the part of the Atlantic coast of Europe that wasn't actually attacked by the Allies. But they were part of the Atlantic Wall, that vast network of fortifications that the Nazis had erected in, because they had no idea where the Allies would land, and the Allies could conceivably have landed on the Dutch coast, in which case Tessel would have been the front line of the, of the fight against the Allies. So that's why they wound up there. They were there to, as part of the Atlantic Wall and to, to protect the Netherlands from an Allied invasion. So would you like to tell us a little bit about Tessel the place, since this is where most of the action in your book takes place? Yeah, Tessel is a very quiet and quite small island. It's the largest of the Waden Islands, which is the string of islands along the Dutch coast that goes right up into Germany. It's the, um, it's the southernmost largest island. It's, it's largely flat, of course. It's, much of it is on reclaimed land. I had to learn a whole new terminology, which you call these reclaimed lands. It's crisscrossed by dikes. It's full of sheep um, and potatoes. It's a very quiet, rural place. The little town at the center, Denburg, is a... Uh, it's just a small village. There are, the other villages are basically hamlets. The Dutch are scattered around the island in their, in their farms, basically. And it was a peaceful island and remained peaceful until the day the Georgians took up arms. There had been no fighting at all on Tessel at any point in the war. So you talk about the Georgians hooking up with the Dutch resistance to plan this revolt. At what point did that happen? Shortly after they arrived or later? Uh, well, they, they, hooked, they hooked up with a very specific part of the resistance. The Georgians, when they were before they were in Tessel, they were in uh, some town south of there in, in, on, the, on the mainland, the Dutch mainland. And there they hooked up with the underground Dutch Communist Party. They were already, I think, planning to recast themselves as loyal Soviet citizens and as loyal communists. 
So they, they contacted the Dutch Communist Party and they began making plans. This was uh, in 1944. They, had, they arrived in Tessel in January 45. This was in late 1944. They, they told the Dutch Communists, we can rise up, we can mobilize Georgians and other Soviet soldiers. We're all really close to the Soviet Union. We want to help. We can rise up now and we can march on Amsterdam. And the, the Dutch Communist Party had to talk them out of that. They said, don't, don't, don't be crazy. You'll be slaughtered if you attempt that. But they had this long-term plan that they were going to, at some point, at this point, from 1944 onwards for sure, at some point they were going to rise up and the Dutch Communist Party would help them. And they would help the communists. They would provide them with arms. because The Dutch Communists didn't have arms. They did. And they'd help each other. That was the plan. On Tessel itself, there were hardly any communists. So they made contact with the, the mainstream um, Dutch, uh, Dutch resistance movement, who they informed about the uprising a few hours before it actually happened. Just out of curiosity, how did how did they find Dutch communists? I mean, it's not like you know you can go on Instagram and be like, "Any Dutch communists here?" Yes, yeah, so surprisingly, um, they didn't have access to Instagram. Incredibly, um, one of the strange stories, and somebody pointed this out to me when when um, Evgeny Artemidze, who's the guy they say was the commissar of the group, and is a bit of a mixed bag. This guy's history. When he arrived on Tessel, he knocked on doors of um, Dutch resistance leaders. And said, I'm, I'm one of the Georgians, and you know, he's in a German uniform, knocks on the door and tells them, and you know, we're thinking of organizing rebellion, we want to be in touch with you guys. And the Dutch were flabbergasted, like, how is he allowed to wander around the island, knock on doors, and hook up with the resistance? How does he even know what the resistance is? Presumably he was told by the Dutch communists on the mainland on whose door to knock. But it showed um, part of the Soviet mythology is that they were prisoners of war. They were not German soldiers. And the prisoners of war cannot wander around the farmhouses of Tessel, knocking on doors, hooking up to the resistance. So clearly they had a measure of freedom that allowed them to knock on doors and to meet Dutch people and to ask around. And they, and they, did, they did successfully hook up with the non-communist resistance on Tessel, as they had done with the Communist Party on the Dutch mainland. Do you think it's simply because the Germans were disorganized or because it was an island? Because I've heard similar stories actually um, from Jersey about uh, workers being brought over from Spain essentially as kind of slave labor, uh, indentured labor, and just being basically allowed to wander all over the island as they please. And they did things like wreck the you know, you know building railways and stuff um, because they didn't really like yeah, the Nazis. Well, uh... Well, that was the case in, 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 in the Channel Islands of the Germans just being lax, right? There was no place these guys were going to go, so they weren't worried about them. But in, in Tessel, these were not slave laborers. These were not people who could be seen as possibly hostile. These were soldiers of the Wehrmacht who had sworn an oath of loyalty to Hitler. So they were trusted. Just like a German soldier, you know, it was kind of a, people have this idea soldiers spend 24 hours a day doing soldiering. Actually, they got lots of time off. On a little island like this, they could easily get on bicycles, wander around, even take a car. And they did. They, they were masters of the island. So they were German soldiers like any other German soldiers. And therefore, they had complete freedom to wander around the island and get to, get to meet the local Dutch people and hook up with the resistance. This is just such an interesting picture of some dude on a bicycle driving up <laughs> to your house and knocking and be like, hey, do you want to join my rebellion? And there, was, is... and there was a lot of suspicion. The initial reaction of some of the Dutch was, I didn't understand who this guy was or why, how he knew my name. There was a bit of that. I'm guessing, I was asked about this earlier by someone, um, how would they have known the name and the address? And I'm guessing that the Dutch resistance on the mainland had contact. And I think the Dutch Communist Party, with all its quirkiness, was actually part of the mainstream resistance by 1944-45. So they would have been able to ask the other resistance people, who do we have in Tessel? 
these guys are going there. So there was one um, Communist Party woman on Tessel that they found, and she was quite helpful for them. She's probably one of the people who found or made Soviet flags for them to hang up when, when, when they thought they were winning. But there was, really weren't very many communists there. But yes, it's a very strange idea of these Georgians in German uniform having the complete freedom to wander around the island and meet up with the Dutch. And nobody checking, like, why he's doing this, you know, why is... Yeah, it's, it's very trusted. different. Well, they were, they were trusted. I think they were also... Yeah, they were flirting with Dutch girls. You know, there was a bit of that going on, as German <laughs> soldiers were too. They, they were seen as just part of the German army. They were completely trusted. But they were trusted to the point where their, their commanding officer, who was a German, Major Klaus Breitner, he survived the war and got to tell his side of the story. And he said, you know, we trusted them completely. I took my Georgian adjutant with me when I go on holiday with my families. He would come to Germany with me. They were like our brothers. And the Germans thought they were completely loyal, were completely shocked. When the Georgians rebelled, well, except for Hitler, <laughs> except for Hitler, Hitler was the only 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 Germany did not suspect the Georgians. To his credit, the one nice thing we can say about Hitler, he really got that. So, what exactly happens at, when the Georgians rebel? Um, you know, take us through what this rebellion looks sure. like. First of all, I mean, they they what they didn't at any point rebel until April fifth, nineteen forty five. They and wait till then, so they triggered the rebellion was the German high command, in its infinite wisdom, decided that these half of the Georgians on Tessel should be taken off the island the following morning and taken to um, the Dutch city of Arnhem, famously from the, the film and book A Bridge Too Far, which at that time was being besieged or attacked yet again by the British and Canadian forces. They were to go join the German forces in Arnhem and hold the line and stop the British and Canadian advance. It was an incredibly stupid order to give. Uh, Every Georgian who heard this knew it was a death sentence. The Georgians, this, um, when they got the order, secretly their leadership met in a wood on Tessel and discussed what to do, and they all agreed, this is the moment we've been waiting for. We're not going to go to Arnhem. We're not going to join the German army in the mainland. We're going to stay here in Tessel, and we're going to kill every single German on the island and liberate the island. Make Tessel part of the liberated Netherlands. They decided they would launch their um, project, their mutiny, at one o'clock in the morning, they fire some flares, and to keep it quiet, largely, so people wouldn't realize there was a battle going on, they were going to kill the Germans silently using their shaving knives, their bayonets, and their daggers. So the Germans and Georgians were sharing the same barracks. Every Georgian was told, these are the two or three or five Germans you're responsible for killing in their beds while they slept. And they killed initially, in the first couple of hours of, of the slaughter, over 400 Germans. Slashed their throats in most cases. In some cases, they had to use their weapons, which did make noise and did alert the Germans. So the first few hours was basically a bloodbath, where hardly any Georgians were killed or injured, and the Germans were quite ruthlessly slaughtered. And this continued for several hours. And so none of them felt bad about killing the dudes they'd been you know, hanging out with for the past... Three or four years? Well, exactly. This is how the, the Germans look at it. The Germans say, I, we don't understand. We were like the best comrades. We were really nice to you. You shared our food. We lived in the same barracks. We thought, we thought you were part of our army. And so they out of nowhere, you weren't. Which shows the extent to which the Georgians were really not particularly loyal to the Germans. They never were. You couldn't have persuaded people who had an ounce of sympathy for the Germans to have done this. So all along, the Georgians who say that we never really supported the Germans or liked Hitler or the Nazis, they're not really lying. They demonstrated this quite clearly by not hesitating to 
kill all these Germans. And they think they probably killed more Germans that first night with their knives and their, and their bayonets than the Dutch resistance had killed in the entire war. That sounds plausible. Yeah. I mean, 400 dead people is a, a, lot, of, a lot of dead people. It was essentially... But the Georgians are known for sort of Kinjal kind of warfare, too. They, they are, and they also were, were excellent marksmen though they pretended not to be. That was one of the curious stories you heard, was they would pretend they really use rifles, but actually when the fighting came up, they were crack shots in addition to being ruthless. And I, I, I've made a point to people that at that point, because Tesla had been this incredibly quiet island, nothing had happened. People would zip around their bicycles and you know, they were well-fed. It was very different from what was happening on the mainland. I, on that um, morning, the war came to Tesla, but it wasn't the war of the Western Front, which was a kind of regular gentlemanly war where army fought against army and civilians tried to stay away from the danger. This was the war of the Eastern Front, where there were no prisoners taken and civilians were caught in the crossfire and it was a, a war without any rules at all that, that began a tussle that night. So uh, clearly the Germans are not happy about you know, 400 of them being murdered. How do they retaliate? Well, part of the Georgian plan, they had a plan to take uh, several several things, including the naval batteries on each end of the island, very powerful artillery pieces that were designed to sink Allied warships that would approach the islands. They were enormous guns controlled by the Navy, and they wanted to seize those two things, capture the port, the airfield, and to capture the German commandant, uh, Major Klaus Breitner. And they failed at capturing the naval batteries because the Navy guys who were guarding them wouldn't allow the Georgians in, even though the Georgians were in German uniform. Basically, this is they were off limits, and they, and, and they couldn't find Breitner. He wasn't in his barracks. He was with his mistress. And when I visited Tessel, I was taken by a, a local historian. He showed me the actual house where, where Breitner had been cavorting with his girlfriend rather than commanding the, uh, the German forces. So Breitner raced to one of these batteries, like the Southern Battery, got through, got on the radio, got a message to Berlin saying this has happened. And the order came back, which was to uh, slaughter all the Georgians and that more German troops would be landed and that the naval batteries were to turn their guns from facing out, out toward the sea, inland. They could pound the whole island and basically kill all the Georgians and many Dutch people, as many as they could. That, that was their reaction. But at this point, Berlin is already in very, very serious trouble. Did reinforcements actually come? Yeah, this is, again, a strange part of the story, because this is a point I checked. This is where Hitler is already deep in, in the Fuhrer bunker. It's like the scenes in the movie Downfall, where he's ranting and raving and deploying non-existent units to liberate Berlin, to, to relieve Berlin. And he, is, you know, has, he has nothing at his disposal. And yet, there are still vast German armies that are intact all over Europe, you know, in Norway, in Denmark, in large parts of the Netherlands. German armies are intact. So the Germans were able to land a considerable number of troops on Tessel, some of the reports say that they were SS as well. They apparently landed some tanks and they turned the full firepower of these naval artillery. So they put a massive amount of firepower to bear against the Georgians within the first 24 hours of the uprising. You talked too about how the Dutch resistance and the Georgians differed in their treatment of local, primarily Dutch fascists. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit and maybe why it was important? Yeah, there was a strong local fascist movement, which had predated the German invasion and grew much stronger once the Germans became occupiers of, of a local fascist organization. The, um, both sides agreed, both the Georgians and the Dutch agreed on, you know, on day one of the uprising. These, 
fascists had to be arrested. Where they disagreed was the, the Dutch had this idea we'd arrest them, maybe interrogate them, maybe try them, punish them somehow. The Georgians were like, we should, we should cut their throats, kill them or shoot them. The, the Georgians had a very ruthless view of this. They didn't want to capture and hold any Germans, not even officers who they could have interrogated or held as hostages. The Georgians were keen on killing not just all the Germans they came across, but all the Dutch fascists as well. They had a disagreement that the Dutch prevailed. They said, let's not kill them. They might come in useful later, which they did. They were able to play roles intermediaries between the resistance and the Germans. But it shows how ruthless the Georgians were when they finally did turn their guns on, on the Germans. They showed no mercy to anyone. Well, you also mentioned that some of these local fascists were... Um helpful in keeping the Germans from just murdering certain Dutch citizens who they just grabbed off the streets. Yeah, well, later on, I mean, initially on the first day of the fighting, the Germans rounded up 14 Dutch men um, and put them in, into a, a truck and drove them to a point on the, I think, on the western side of the island. Uh, four of them somehow jumped off the truck and got away, which is one of those, it's like you describe how odd it is people riding bicycles around the island. They just jumped off the truck and ran away. But 10 of them stayed on the truck, wound up someplace, you know, some desolate part of the island, and the Germans shot all 10 of them. The Germans claimed these Dutch civilians were aiding and abetting the, the, the mutineers. I think the, the Germans eventually stopped re- this kind of wholesale slaughter of the Dutch, but their artillery was pounding Dutch homes. They set fire to many of the farmhouses because they suspected them of hiding Georgians, which many of them were. So many, many, many Dutch people, including many Dutch children, were, were killed, the large, not necessarily intentionally, but in the crossfire. So how do the, the Dutch view this historically? Do they just well, view themselves as victims of two crazy sides and they got stuck in the middle? Or It depends who you talk to. Again, the, um, there is a view on the island, local people, that are kind of hostile to what the Georgians did. Their argument has always been that um, these, these Georgians were doing what was good for them. They were trying to save their necks to prove to Stalin and the Soviets that they were good, loyal Soviet citizens, blah, blah. Uh, and that if they just stayed put and shut up and waited for the end of the war, no one would have died. No Dutch people and no one else. They would have been repatriated to the Soviet Union. And that we Dutch suffered for no reason. There's quite a bit of that there. However, in the Netherlands as a whole, the reaction of the Dutch Communist Party, which was a very strong party in 1945, as many of the Communist parties in Europe grew tremendously right after the war, their view was these Georgians were heroes, and we Dutch people owe them a debt of gratitude. They helped rid us of the fascist, you know, occupiers and so on. And there was, was a division. I mean, the Dutch communists led for decades of memorial services and so on and treated these Georgians a, as heroes in the fight against the Nazis. So how does the revolt end? Are the Georgians slaughtered by the German counterattack or how, what happens to them? Well, it proceeded, it, it began initially as, as a proper war with the Georgians and German armies sort of faced each other. That lasted about a day. And then the Georgians quickly went uh, engaged in partisan attacks. But they broke up into small groups, they scattered around the island, and the Germans basically had to march across the island inch by inch, reconquering it. And terrified, if they got too close to the Georgians, the Georgians would, would, would shoot them dead because the Georgians were excellent marksmen. So they would burn down farmhouses rather than engage in combat. And this went on for weeks and weeks. The final Georgian kind of stronghold was the lighthouse on the island. And on April 20th, Hitler's birthday, which was 15 days into the rebellion, the Germans finally took that by sending a unit of sappers from the Hermann Goering division to blow it up and set it on fire. 
and the last remaining Georgians ran out. But there was still, even after that, over 200 Georgian survivors scattered around the island, living in ditches and barns and in the, in the woods and just all over the place. And they would just be shooting at the Germans, you know, partisan warfare for weeks. And it went on until literally till May 20th. So you start the book out with this story of these um, Dutch and what they thought were Russian, turns out to be Georgian people in a boat that get picked up on the way to England. Right. And that's sort of how the English figure out what the heck is going on. How did the, these men end up in a boat and what happens to them once they do get picked up by the English? Yeah, they went, first of all, the Georgians um, thought initially they would send a radio message to the Allies saying, we've liberated the island. This was part of their plan. We're going to get a radio. We're going to tell the Allies we've liberated the island and they'll come in and help us. And the radio didn't work. Because, so they thought, oh my God, they don't know. They don't know what's happening. They can't come here because they think that the island is still held by the Germans, that we haven't liberated it. They had no idea, no one did, that the British were listening to German radio communications. The people at Bletchley Park were decoding them. And the Allies had real-time intelligence on the rebellion. They heard every message to Berlin and all the messages back, and the Allies knew. There was no need to uh, tell them. But these guys were sent, I think, four Georgians and a bunch of Dutch people. There was one boat on the northern tip of the island, uh, a lifeboat. They said it would take about 24 hours, but they, they could get to England. And they, they snuck out. Their, their message was to tell the English, you guys have to help us. The RAF has to land. We're holding the airfield for that purpose. If any British troops arrive, the Germans will surrender to them. So that was the purpose of it. And when they landed, actually one of the people, who, these British, um, they called them Coast Guards. These were kind of older men guarding the coast with their rifles. They saw them. They saw these men in German uniform who they believed later were Russian. Uh, I actually was in correspondence with the grandchildren, one of these men who sent me these press clippings describing how surprised they were. They didn't know if this was a hostile ship. Was this a German invasion? This late in the war? And, but they received them, and the Dutch were treated like heroes and went to meet their queen in London. And the Georgians, then thought to be Russians, in German uniform, were, were taken off to be interrogated. What happens to these men after their interrogation? Are they repatriated? I, I, I actually don't know the answer. The assumption has to be yes, they must have been repatriated. Uh, so how does this rebellion end? I mean, you, you say that you know, eventually does end with over two, 200 Georgians living in ditches. Clearly, that's not a long-term tenable situation. Do the British eventually come in and take the island and start sorting things out? I mean, what, what eventually no, the, the, the British actually never arrived. What happened was um, the war in the Netherlands ended on May 5th, three days before the rest of Europe, when the German armies in the Netherlands surrendered to the Allies. The British and Canadians who had taken the Netherlands completely ignored the Western part, including these islands like Tessel, because that wasn't on the road to Germany. They didn't care. So from May 5th and then May 8th is VE Day. The, the British and Canadian forces are celebrating and having parties and dancing in the streets of Amsterdam. But there are still parts of the Netherlands that are actually occupied by German troops, including Tessel. And they divide up these places to go look and they send um, a, a unit of the Royal Canadian Artillery, a survey regiment, is sent to go to Tessel. And so the two officers take a little boat over to Tessel from the mainland, Canadians, and realize there's still shooting going on on the island. And the Germans are terrified of the Georgians. The Georgians are terrified of the Germans. The Dutch want everything to end. And the commanding officer writes in his war diary, this is Lieutenant Colonel Kirk, writes, it was like a musical comedy situation. 
and his job was to put an end to it. And first, the first task was these Canadians were to gather up all the Germans and get them off the island and get them back to Germany. They were to be taken as prisoners. The Germans were completely relieved that the Georgians were shooting at them all the time. Well, the Georgians, the Georgans wouldn't have taken him prisoner. They would have just no, no, murdered him. No, they didn't take anybody prisoner. So, I mean, the last victim of, of the fighting was actually, sadly, was a Dutch civilian who was killed by accident by a Georgian. But there were Germans being shot at all the time, and, and they their last act on the island, they were so, even then, after everything, the war had already been over for two weeks now. It's already May 20th. The last thing that the Germans do on the island is they take the battalion flag of the Georgians. They had a flag to carry, and they burned it. They were so angry that Georgians had betrayed their oath of loyalty to Hitler and to the Wehrmacht. They, they never forgave the, the Georgians. They never understood the Georgians, what they were dealing with. So the Canadians then rounded up the Georgians. The Georgians all came, you know, to, they, they understood the Germans were now gone. They were allowed to create a cemetery and bury all their dead, and have ceremonies and so on. And then, then they were taken off by the same Canadians. And the guy, the Canadian officer who took them off is the son of the guy who wrote 39 Steps, in a famous film by Hitchcock and others. Uh, his son was a Canadian officer. Uh, he was a, a bird watcher. He was thrilled to be on Tesla because of the birds. His first account of the island had no mention of the Georgians and, and the Germans. He wrote, he wrote an article with photographs, which was published, of bird watching on Tesla. But he escorted the Georgians back to the mainland. And then they were eventually to also repatriated to Georgia? They were repatriated to the Soviet Union, but they were sent with um, two letters. First of all, the, the commander of the Canadian forces, General Folks, wrote a long letter basically giving it the, the Georgians' own propaganda line. You know, we were never loyal to the Germans. We were fighting them all the time. We liberated the island. We're completely committed to the Allied cause. We love Stalin. He wrote it up as a letter to the Soviet high command, and it went with the Georgians. The Soviet officers were given that the Canadians viewed these Georgians as allies in the fight against fascism. And about a month or so later, Eisenhower sent an almost identical letter from the Allied high command. So they had the Allied leadership telling the, the, the Russians and the Soviets, these are good guys, do not punish them. They consider them allies. And the Dutch Communist Party took the same view. And they had their own channels of communication with the Soviets, and they also said, these are our allies, we're all part of the same resistance, they are not to be punished. Do you know what happened to these men later? I mean, you said they don't go to the Gulag. Do you know like, where any of them end up? Do they oh, go back oh, yeah. to Georgia? They go back to Georgia. Some of them remained in the army a little while longer. There was a, some of them were sent to the Gulag for a while. It's a very small number. The vast majority eventually, fairly soon, are, are back in Georgia. Uh, Artemidze, who was literally one of the top two people in the rebellion, is back in Georgia very quickly. He, I think he goes back to university. He you know, sets up a business. He buys a new home. I visited his home, which was near his childhood home. He bought a house. Uh, and he gets married, has kids. They, they all have normal lives. They have quiet lives, the vast majority of them. They were, they were not, the Soviets chose not to punish them and instead to create a whole mythology about the, their heroism. How does modern Georgia deal with this incident? Meaning post-Soviet Georgia? Yeah. Yeah, I find this one of the strangest parts of the story. The Soviets, for their own reasons, together with the Dutch communists, for their own reasons, decide these guys were never actually German soldiers, right? They were prisoners of war. And they somehow got hold of the weapons at the last minute and carried out this rebellion. And he made a feature film about it in the late 1960s about called Crucified Island. It's a terrible film. And it shows these Georgians completely innocent. They're not, they're not German soldiers. They somehow rise up. Incredible heroism. 
This was the Soviet line. So when Georgia becomes an independent country in 1991, the Georgian leadership it realizes that everything the Soviets have ever told us is untrue, right? The first Georgian Republic were actually good guys. Stalin was actually a bad guy. Beria was a monster. They learn this stuff. They, they reject the whole mythology, all the ideology of the Soviet regime, except in the case of Tessel. This, they decided the Soviets were, were, were completely accurate. These men were never in the, in, the, in the German army. They were prisoners of war. And president, the president of Georgia, not the current one, but the one who was president... Sakashvili? Sakashvili. was president during, during the, the war with the Russians. Um, two it, when, wars with the Russians. Two wars with the Russians, yeah. He was quite an anti-Russian. <laughs> he, of all people, he goes to Tessel in, 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 the, in the first decade of this century. He goes with his wife, who's actually Dutch, has a, a ceremony there, and gives a speech, and then later gives several speeches where he talks about the heroism of these incredibly heroic Georgian men who fought the Nazis, and never acknowledges for a second that they themselves were in the German army and, in fact, had, had betrayed the Soviet Union and so on. And it's, this becomes kind of the, the state position in Georgia. Very few people acknowledge that there was anything other than heroism at play here. Does this what, line still stand? Because Saakashvili is now a wanted fugitive in Georgia, he is. living in Ukraine. <laughs> he is. But, but this line, to a degree, still stands. And, and this is why I was challenged, as I say, by, by a, a Georgian historian who I admire a great deal. He was actually a bit of a personal friend, so I, don't, I won't say his name, but he wrote and said, these soldiers could never have been partisans. That's communist propaganda. Uh, sorry, anti-partisans. They, could, they were never involved in those kinds of things. The reality was they, they, they were part of the, of the German army, and they did stuff they shouldn't have done. And the, this mythology around them is silly, and the Georgians should grow out of it. And accept that it's, it's a complex story. And my Georgian translator and publisher really get this. And they've actually made a cover of the book for the Georgian edition that shows on one side a hammer and sickle and the other a swastika. And they're saying, as I view it, these men were crushed between two ruthless totalitarian regimes. They're not heroes, but it's a more complex story than that. And they had no good choices. They were victims like everyone else. So what do you think the overall takeaway of your book is that this sort of myth-making is unhelpful and that reality is far more complex? Or? Well, I'm a big fan of reality. <laughs> myth-making myth is, is overrated. Um, and in fact, I got to learn quite a bit about myth-making in general. I wasn't aware how much this actually happens. The whole process of memorialization and so on is, was an interesting part of the story. But I think the, the main takeaway is, look, in, in the, by the mid-20th century, you had these gigantic totalitarian empires that were the worst things that ever happened to the people who lived under them. And it, it really didn't matter if you lived under, under Stalin or under Hitler. You were going to suffer in most cases, in many cases. The Georgians really were crushed between, between them. And they didn't have any heroic options. They couldn't rise up against both empires and you know, make a heroic and clean stand. Everybody was tainted by the experience. Everybody had to compromise with, with the reality of their time. So if anything, I feel sorry. These were young Georgian men. They were 18, 19, 20 years old. They were not political. They found themselves fighting for one army and then for the other and then yet again fighting. And all they were thinking, clearly, from what they were doing the whole time was how to get home safely to their families. There was no ideology at play. They just wanted to survive. Yeah, I mean, my experience even looking at collective farms is that there are there are no saints. There are some sinners. I mean, there are some genuinely yes. terrible people. Um, you know, I, I found people who are like pedophiles and murderers and shit. Yes. Um, but there are there are no saints, and I think making saints out of people is probably a bad idea. But most people are really just trying to survive and do the best that they can with what they have. Yes, I I, I absolutely agree. 
and the, the mythology is often quite silly. Um, there's in the home of Artemidze, his home, who was one of the survivors, just died a couple of years ago. He has a whole room set aside. His daughter showed me with all these newspaper clippings and artifacts and photographs. And one of the ones he's most proud of was a, a story, I think it was in a Dutch newspaper. The headline was something he said. And he said, um, I wear the uniform of Hitler, but my heart is with Stalin. And it's completely untrue, right? I mean, it's, he was not a loyal communist. If he was, he wouldn't have been wearing a German uniform. So this, well, no, like, he'd have been dead. <laughs> he'd have been dead. So you know, these guys, given the choice of saying, yeah, I'm an opponent to the Reich, shoot me. Instead of saying that, they did what anyone would have done. They said, me, I'm not an opponent to the Reich. What, what do you want? So they, um, they did demonstrate heroism in, in, in their fight for survival. They showed heroism. But it was not ideological at all. It wasn't out of any anti-Nazi or, or pro-Soviet sentiment at all. And their whole behavior from the beginning of the war till the end was, was just an attempt to make do under the worst of circumstances. They weren't saints and they weren't sinners. Well, thank you very much for telling us this really interesting story. Um, are you working on any sort of new project now? I am. Am I allowed to reveal it? Sure. I'm um, in the final stages, I hope, of completing an early draft of a book I've been working on for more than 30 years about a document known as the Yeriman Letter. You know it. Yeah, you, you actually sent me this and said it was it was on hold. I, I wondered what had it's, happened. It's no, it's no longer on hold. It's, it's going to be real. I'm learning new stuff all the time. It's one of these great historical mysteries. We will find out at the end if the Yeriman Letter is genuine. And if it is genuine, it means that Stalin is not who we thought he was. Well, this is the letter right for our listeners who don't know that claims that Stalin was a narc for the Tsarist Akrana. <laughs> yes, it, it, it purports to be a genuine letter written in 1913 from the headquarters of the Department of Police in St. Petersburg documenting Stalin's loyalty to the Tsarist regime and to his police force. He was, he was a double agent. <laughs> this, this does appear to maybe be a Georgian theme here. <laughs> yeah, this, this will be known as my Georgian trilogy. Make do with whoever's in charge. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting, and hopefully when you finish it, you can come and do another podcast with us. I, I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for being here. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.